Uh, good morning, everybody. So it's a pleasure to, to basically introduce the speakers for this uh, morning session in a field which I think, as was already said, is very much in the public domain and I think will remain in, in the public domain. And it's not only because of the issue of embryonic stem cells, but there are a number of other ethical issues which I think will be brought up uh, uh, with the speakers also. And I think it's important to be aware of that this is a field that is still in its very early start when it comes to the promise uh, or hope for medicine. Uh, although I think it's also important to emphasize that there is a history in stem cell research. Actually, two Nobel Prizes in principle have been given for stem cell research. Uh, as much as 20 years ago, it was given for bone marrow transplantation. And uh, as you know, uh, recently given for embryonic uh, stem cell research or in reality more for the ability to do basically transgenic work and study the genetics uh, very much. And we'll have one of the pioneers in this area talking uh, partially about this. So I think you know the public awareness in this field is very much due to uh, ethical issues, but also the great hope uh, that stem cell research has in uh, regenerative uh, medicine. And it also has implications uh, for, uh, for uh, large diseases as cancers from a completely different point of view, which will not be touched upon here today. But I think it's also very important to, uh, to keep that hope going in the uh, community. And we will hear at the, with the last speaker today about some very, very exciting uh, clinical results. And as I said, bone marrow transplantation is an established therapy. But I think the great hopes for stem cell research with diseases like diabetes and Parkinson, which is a lot uh, discussed, we're looking, I think, a long time ahead before we can really fully realize those uh, potentials. And I think there are a number of hurdles that one, as in other fields, like in the gene therapy field, must be careful as we move uh, ahead. So, and I think a part of that process is actually to, to keep the public aware of the developments that are happening and also actually the reason to be cautious uh, as uh, we move ahead and also not generating too much disappointment, as we often do in medicine, promising more than we can hold. But I think in the long run, it is more than fair to say, and even in the short run, that there we will see major breakthroughs uh, in this area. And today, I think we will focus a lot on basically using cells uh, for transplantation purposes in regenerative medicine. But there is another as exciting part, I think, of regenerative medicine, which is about understanding how uh, basically developmental processes and repair processes are regulated and using those regulator, regulators to stimulate endogenous regenerative medicine, if you want. And even that is applied today, for instance, in hematology, where we have identified growth factors and can actually stimulate regeneration of specific uh, cell types. So, uh, so I think also I would like to congratulate OIBC for having this symposium, because I think it is very important to have this public uh, awareness uh, meetings and I think today we will hear about the, uh, you know where the forefront is in stem cell research where the challenges are and maybe also some uh, something about the ethical issues and I'm sure at least during the debate which I am unfortunately won't be able to participate in myself I'm sure that these issues will be touched upon so I'd like then to move to introducing the first speaker uh, and we have three speakers today who will talk uh, touch upon um, related but quite different areas, and I'm particularly pleased to introduce the first speaker, Sir Richard Gardner, who has been the Royal Society of Avram uh, uh, Research Professor here at Oxford University, 
and he has been a pioneer in many uh, ways in the stem cell uh, field. He, as much as 40 years ago, he was in the absolute forefront of what we can call embryonic stem cell research, understanding this research very much come, came out of uh, studies of the embryo and trying to understand how embryos uh, develop, and he made major contributions in making so-called so mouse chimeras by injections of cells into into early blastocysts and seeing how that contributes to different uh, tissues. And he went on uh, during uh, a very uh, productive uh, period to also make major contributions to how basically what we call patterning of the early embryos with respect to specification of different lineages and tissues. Uh, and increasingly, I think the last decade he has been interested in the use of exploitation of stem cells, not only for genetic uh, work and transgenic work, but also for regenerative medicine. And as a function of that, actually, I think not only in this country, but also internationally, he has a, has a major, had a major impact on what I think is a sound uh, uh, debate on where stem cell research should be going. And he has been the chair of the Royal Society Working Group on Stem Cells and Cloning. And he's been a leader in scientific, public, and ethical debates, not only in this country, as I said, uh, I was reading up a little bit yesterday, and uh, as we know, one of the main reasons for the interest in stem cell research was the previous U.S. Uh, president, to be honest, and uh, uh, Sir Richard Gardner actually played a ma major role in meeting with uh, members uh, of the Senate and Congress when they visited the U.K. to basically try to understand how they should move forward with uh, embryonic stem cell research, and I think we're going to see a change. I, th I think we know we're going to see a change in, in that, uh, uh, also in the U.S. So, welcome, uh, uh, Gardner, and we look forward to listening to your talk. Thank you very much for those uh, very kind introductory words. I'm very grateful to Charles Pasternak for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. And I want to try today to give an overview of uh, where we've got to and where we might be going with stem cell research to try and convey to you some of the current excitement about the potential of exploiting these cells for the benefit of mankind, but without uh, glossing over some of the uh, ethical and technical issues that have to be resolved or circumvented. Now, science can obviously indicate what is possible to do, but it's up to society to decide whether this is either desirable or acceptable. So I hope to exhort you to take part in the debate this afternoon, because a lot of the areas here are not clear-cut. There's a lot of division of opinion and a lot of uncertainty at the moment, and I may say a tendency to engage in hyperbole so far as where stem cell research has got. So what I'd like to begin by doing, to organize my talk, to begin by uh, <clears throat> asking the question, uh, what, is the, what are the seminal features of stem cells and why are they so important, before going on to look at three scientific developments that have brought us to where we are now, and then to consider how those developments might be harnessed to the benefit of mankind before finally addressing some of these technical and other issues. So if I begin with the, the, the stem cell story, uh, the cardinal feature of a stem cell is it is a cell that is able to produce progeny that are identical to itself 
as well as form one or more, or in some cases, very many different types of more specialized cell. And I've just illustrated here the, the three general patterns of division. If we consider a stem cell as the one with the red surrounding cytoplasm, basically they can engage in a conservative division, so both products retain the characteristics of the parental stem cell. They can engage in a differential division so that one product retains stem cell properties, the other goes on to become specialized, or when you get to my age, you can be in the depressing situation where both products of a stem cell differentiate, so you suffer a net loss of stem cells. So you can imagine in general during life history that during embryonic and postnatal development, there's a net expansion of stem cell population. Uh, when you reach adulthood, you get into a situation of more gentle stasis, and then finally into one of decline. So though that is the signal property of stem cells, they have other features, and all these tend to be geared to this problem uh, of uh, <coughs> potential errors, mutations, being incurred every time a cell divides. So I don't want to go into too much detail here. Many of you will be familiar with the structure of DNA. If we regard it as really two hemiladders, so split down the middle, uh, two, two verticals, and the semi-branches um, across, and we can call, uh, in honor of those who discovered this structure, we can call one hemiladder Crick and the other Watson. And the important thing is the color of these hemiladders, that a red will only match with a green and a blue with a yellow. So when the DNA replicates, the two hemiladders separate uh, <coughs> into Crick and Watson, and the important thing is that the old Crick half contains all the information for assembling a new Watson and vice versa. But any copying process is prone to errors. So if you have a stem cell that has a potential throughout life to produce vast numbers of progeny, you have this problem of the risk of an error in copying which will then have devastating effects if that cell is going to go on and grow and divide for a long period of time. So a number of the other properties of stem cells are really related to this problem of reducing the risk of error. So although I showed you in the earlier slide uh, the three types of stem cell division, a more realistic picture, if we consider the differential division, for example, is like this. In other words, a stem cell can divide, one product can retain stem cell properties, the other one that's going on to specialize, instead of doing so immediately, can engage in a several rounds of division before it goes on to differentiate. This is known by the rather pompous term of transit amplification, but all it means is that you are multiplying this product before it differentiates, and obviously the greater number of divisions that intervene between the production of this cell and its differentiation, the fewer times a stem cell has to divide in order to produce a certain number of progeny. Another feature of this is that in stem cells, there are features that enable uh, errors in DNA replication to be identified, and the consequences of detecting those errors can differ according to the tissue, and we don't understand why. 
But in the case of the large intestine, in errors of replication are recognized, there is an editing mechanism that tends to correct those, whereas in the small intestine, the signal we've made an error tends to lead to so-called apoptosis of cells. In other words, the cells are uh, committed to uh, committing suicide and therefore die. A further, uh, more contentious uh, possibility is considered here. If we go back to the, the DNA replication, this was suggested by John Cairns many years ago, and some evidence in support of this has been found in the case of the small intestine, but not in the case of the hemopoietic cells of the blood. And that is that um, when you get this division, you've got this is the old parental crick strand, and this is the new one, is that instead of randomly distributing the new and old DNA molecules between progeny cells, you conserve the parental strand to the stem cell. In other words, you're keeping the master copy, and that obviously is another way of reducing these errors. But why these cells are so vitally important, uh, not just during development and early postnatal growth, is that we actually lose literally billions of cells every day largely from our skin, from the surface of the intestine, and from the blood. And as a crude estimate, it's been suggested that we actually turn over our entire body weight of cells every year. And the cells that are shed from skin, they're dehydrated and crinkled. They look rather like potato crisps, and they're actually a major component of house dust. So most of the dust you see in your house is actually shed from the surface of your own body. So those are the, some of the features of stem cells, and I have to say that the history of regenerative medicine is actually much older and longer than uh, recent excitement would suggest. Uh, use of skin from the face or the buttocks to restore noses that had been amputated for various crimes was practiced in India about 3,000 years ago. In fact, for the skin of the buttocks, they had special uh, uh, <coughs> wooden mallets that were used to tenderize the thing, much as you would a steak, so that you would put it on the amputated region, stuff a couple of straws up, and, uh, and uh, so in order to retain patency of the nostrils, and these were, of course, autographs. You were grafting between the same individual. So there was no problem of graft rejection. And probably around that time, there was no MRSA or C. difficile. So the operations actually worked surprisingly well. <clears throat> Nowadays, or more recently, the first routine transplantation of tissue between individuals was the transparent corneal region of the eye, the first successful grafting of which was done in Vienna in 1905 and is now practiced quite, uh, quite widely. Uh, and of course nowadays it's become fairly routine to graft cells from one party, part of the body to the other, for example to restore burnt areas of skin, to repair damaged bone and of course most conspicuously to bypass blocked coronary arteries. The first enriched stem cells that were used in transplantation were the so-called hemopoietic stem cells, the blood-forming stem cells in the bone marrow, and everyone must be familiar with bone marrow transplantation. And a recent excitement is, of course, the discovery that you can find these blood-forming stem cells in the placenta and umbilical cord that are discarded at birth, and you can use these as an alternative to marrow grafting but at the moment, people have failed to 
amplify the number of these stem cells from cord before they freeze them, so you only get equivalent of one marrow graft out of them. But this is a, a wonderfully uh, underused resource at present. Now, the prospect of uh, exploiting stem cells more widely comes from three scientific advances that I'd like to consider now. The first of these, pioneered by this gentleman who's now in his mid-80s but and not very well, this is Robert Edwards. His first degree was in agriculture. His second degree was in mouse genetics, which are hardly apposite qualifications for carrying out untried procedures on women. So at the time I joined his lab as a research student, he used to describe himself as an obstetrical groupie. He used to go around meetings trying to convince a single clinician that he was other than completely demented. And fortunately, he convinced the late Patrick Steptoe, who was one of the pioneers of laparoscopic or keyhole surgery, and they teamed up together. They first, uh, we had a celebration in Cambridge a week or two back, the 40th anniversary of the publication of their paper in Nature, uh, demonstrating early stages of human fertilization in vitro, and then after many vicissitudes and a lot of public hostility, this led to the birth of Louise Brown in 1978. But from the purposes of this uh, talk, and these are very early pictures of early development of the human embryo, the four cell, eight cell, on to this so-called blastocyst stage, a round ball with an outer layer of pre-placental cells and an inner group of cells that will form the fetus and other structures, the important thing about Edwards and Steptoe was that it made the early stages of human development available for observation and possible manipulation for the first time ever. And now they improved the culture conditions so they can routinely get through to this blastocyst stage, which is a very important stage. So that is the first development. The second development, due to a colleague of mine called Martin Evans and Matt Kaufman, was to demonstrate in the mouse that if you take these so-called inner cell mass cells, these inner cells, unspecialized cells of the blastocyst, and you grow them under particular conditions, you can uncouple their further specialization from their continued growth. They will go on growing indefinitely, but not become specialized. And why this was very exciting is that these cells are known to be the precursor cells of the entire fetus. So it argued, in principle, you had a stem cell there that was the precursor cell of all the 200 or more cell types of the adult body. And proof that that was the case, it's obviously not ethically acceptable to do this in the human, but you can do it in the mouse. Here are some embryonic stem cells in culture, little colonies. They look particularly dull and uninteresting, but you can separate those cells. And then, by a technique I developed in Cambridge, you can take them and inject them into a blastocyst stage mouse embryo of a different strain. So, so long as the, your donor embryonic stem cells and your host embryo are genetically different, you can then ask what can these cells, when they're put in an early embryo, do and where can they go? And the answer is you get a mouse, in this case, putting a single embryonic stem cell in. All the black dark color on the coat of this mouse is derived from the progeny of a cultured embryonic stem cell. Uh, this is a so-called chimera, 
It bears no resemblance to the monsters of Greek mythology, but the important point is you can look internally in these animals and indeed show that the progeny of that transplanted cell colonized every single organ and tissue. So it truly is what we call a pluripotential stem cell. It's not, as some people misleadingly describe them, totipotent, because a totipotent cell is one that can form a whole individual. These can't. They can't form the placental structures, but they can form everything else. So what this meant with embryonic stem cell technology is you can grow indefinitely in culture a cell that is the precursor cell of all the adult types of cell that you would want, and with increasing degree, people have control over the direction in which they can make those cells differentiate to cardiac muscle cells, skeletal muscle cells, nerve cells, islet cells of the pancreas that produce insulin, and many others. So that was the, ex the second development. The third development was what is known as somatic cell nuclear transfer, and this would be recognized by all of you in relation to Dolly the sheep. These experiments were begun by the first McLaren lecturer, among others, on frogs, and the idea is to take an egg, remove its maternal genetic material, and then take that out of the egg, and then replace it with the genetic material from an adult or a specialized cell. Now, for those of you who are not so familiar with biology, I think a lot of people feel that these sort of experiments are somehow mindless tinkering by scientists that are not uh, in any way particularly directed. This experiment was originally conducted to answer a very, very important question. And that is that we know we need a large number of genes to form an embryo in an adult. But we know that in specialized cells, only a relatively modest subset of all those genes are required to function, to make a muscle cell different from a nerve cell. And indeed, having some of the other genes active would actually confuse the whole issue. So we need all the genes to form an embryo, but in the course of differentiation and specialization, different subsets of genes are required to work. And the question was, what in a specialized cell like a nerve cell has happened to those genes that are not active or required to be inactive in that cell for it to be normal? Are these genes lost? Almost certainly not, because all cells contain the same DNA content. Are they irreversibly chemically modified, or are they basically unchanged? And you can't think of a more incisive way of asking that question than taking the nucleus of a specialized cell and putting it into an egg and asking, can it develop a new adult? And that was the triumph of these experiments, which proves we don't know in the case of Dolly, we can't say it's a terminally specialized cell that gave Dolly because the cell culture came from the mammary gland and the mammary gland is an organ that undergoes development and involution repeatedly in life. So it could be a mammary gland stem cell. But anyhow, the important part of this scientific advance uh, was to demonstrate that this technique was possible, and its relevance to regenerative medicine I'll come back to somewhat later. So, I mean, really the essential aim of regenerative medicine is to be able to gather together a sufficient number of a given type of cell or groups of specialized types of cell to restore the normal physiology of a tissue or organ that's been damaged physically, chemically, by oxidant deprivation or infectious or genetic disease. And the reason why this is so important in mammals is because particularly after birth, our capacity to regenerate is absolutely pathetic 
compared with that of lower animals. I mean, if you take one of the classic experiments in a salamander, and this can happen naturally in nature, they can have a leg bitten off, but if you amputate the leg of a salamander, within 40 days, you've got a completely restored, functional, active leg. Uh, in mammals uh, like us, there are efforts to regenerate, but as I say, they're very limited. Uh, damage to the spinal cord will often engender cells, stem cells to start dividing, uh, as will damage to the liver, but the, the cells that divide do not go on and form the most appropriate cell type for restoring function. So in other words, if you damage a region of the spinal cord, the, the neural stem cells will start to divide, but they will form so-called glial or scaffolding cells rather than new neurons. If, in the case of the liver, you damage it chemically, of which the, one of the most notable things is alcohol, then uh, you, you, you damage and lose cells that way, but the stem cells that divide form fibrous tissue. They don't form new functional active hepatocytes. And so basically, that's what cirrhosis is all about. You're replacing active functional liver cells by cells that don't contribute to liver function at all, so liver function begins to deteriorate. So the ideal situation in regenerative medicine would, as I mentioned, has been possible in a number of contexts, to take cells from elsewhere in the body, either directly or following growth and amplification in culture, to then graft to restore the region that's damaged. And this has been enormously successful in the case of skin. A relatively small biopsy, then grown in culture, can form huge sheets of skin for dealing with very, very extensive burns of the surface of the body. It's also proved that the cells in the periphery of the, <coughs> the iris region of the eye <coughs> um, have the capacity to grow in culture in the periphery of the cornea, have the capacity to grow in culture and can repair corneas that have been rendered opaque chemically or in various other ways. And the other type of study that's progressing a lot now is in case of, uh, of people with blood disorders like leukemias, you can mobilize the, the hemopoietic stem cells by treatment with certain chemicals. You can mobilize them from the bone marrow into the blood. You can purify them, retain them, and then you can dose the patient with some pretty vicious chemicals to destroy the leukemic cells and then put the normal ones back in. And that's another area that's making great progress. But of course, this is no use uh, if you're trying to restore damage that is due to genetic disease, because all the cells of an individual, even in normal tissues, will carry the same defective gene. So there, you either have to contemplate genetically modifying the patient's cells before you put them back in to overcome the genetic defect, or as some people have suggested, uh, you resort to a, a phenomenon known as xenotransplantation. And uh, xenotransplantation is actually taking organs or tissues from a different animal uh, and using these as grafts, having tried to make them compatible with, with humans so they're not rejected. And I have to tell you unflatteringly that the general view is that the best animal for human purposes is the pig, and people have talked about uh, modifying pig tissue to be accepted as grafts, but people are sitting on their hands over this from the experience of new variants CJD and HIV, because the lessons from those conditions tell us that you can have a pathogen that's quite well adapted to its natural host, but when it crosses species to a new one, the effects can be devastating. 
So in xenotransplantation, you always have the worry and concern that something is lurking in the pig tissues to which the pig is quite happily adapted that might cause devastation. So in the majority of cases, we're still talking about, when we're talking about regenerative medicine, we're talking about carrying out transplantation of tissue from one individual to another, and uh, this means all too often uh, that uh, you're actually saving the life or proposing to save the life of one individual it, that is contingent on the death of another. <clears throat> For example, with a lot of organ transplantation, uh, everyone's familiar with the situation being pretty dire about the availability of donors. This has decreased since the compulsory healthy donors, uh, dead donors has is decreased since the compulsory wearing of seat belts. Uh, in the case of the kidney, uh, robustly promoted is live donation but this involves heavy commitment on the part of the donor because it is major surgery to remove the kidney to transplant. So we have this, this very difficult situation of availability of material. The other problem, of course, is compatibility if you're grafting between individuals. But one uh, interesting <coughs> development on the horizon as far as availability of material grafting was that this in vitro fertilization technology introduced by Edwards and Steptoe uh, by definition involves the production of more early stages of human development than can be used for treatment of infertility. So you, you generate large numbers of so-called spare embryos. I think in the first 10 years of the Human Fertilization Embryology Authority, they said something like three quarters of a million spare embryos had been generated. And it was Edwards in 1982 long before the law was enacted in this area, who made two suggestions. The first suggestion was the possibility of culturing spare embryos on in vitro to the stage where you could use organ rudiments for grafting, and that was prohibited by the 1990 Human Fertilization and Embryology Act, which put the limit on culture to 14 days, or the so-called primitive streak, which is the very initiation of embryonic development, but the other possibility considered at the time was using the, the Evans and Kaufman technique to actually derive embryonic stem cells from these spare human embryos. And it's quite interesting, though he specifically wrote about this in 1982, it took another 14 years before people actually got the message and started to embark on producing human embryonic stem cell lines uh, in, in vitro. Uh, but no sooner had they done so, I mean, this is the way that life in biomedical research is, is never boring or dull, because as soon as they had got this technology working and established these lines, papers began to appear suggesting, uh, originally a trickle of papers and then a flood of papers, arguing that cells from the adult were far more versatile than had been assumed to be the case hitherto. And this just illustrates some of the claimed conversion of cell type that had been uh, recorded in the literature, blood to nerve, bone marrow to liver, pancreas, lung, a whole lot of changes that, uh, that seemed to set a lie to the notion that, that specialization was very stable and adult cells wouldn't interconvert. And of course, this was greatly seized upon by those people who felt it was completely unacceptable to use human embryos for deriving stem cell lines for therapeutic purposes, and they said that this made 
use of embryonic stem cell lines redundant, uh, and they pushed this to an extent that embarrassed even those of my colleagues who are working on so-called adult stem cells. One of the interesting cases here is, for example, in the human where, uh, say, um, a woman has received a, a bone marrow transplant from a male or vice versa, and when they've had reason subsequently to biopsy the liver, they found, uh, in the case of women with a male graft, they found card-carrying, Y-chromosome-carrying cells among the hepatocyte population, supporting the idea of conversion. But we have to be careful here. Many of the cases of these conversions are still anecdotal rather than defined, and there are several complications. The first uh, serious complication is when people have done animal studies to confirm this, they've found in many cases the cells are not converting to the type of cell, purely converting, say, from a bone marrow cell to a liver cell. They're actually fusing with a host cell, a host liver cell, and that is a very dangerous situation because instead of having a normal so-called diploid cell with one set of chromosomes from mother and one from father, you then have two sets from each parent. And if that cell goes on to divide, it tries to lose the extra chromosomes, often fails to do so precisely, and abnormal numbers of chromosomes are a hallmark of various types of malignancy. So that is one uh, concern here. Another concern is that in many cases, uh, what people claim as adult stem cells have never been shown to exhibit any of the special properties of stem cells that I mentioned earlier. And you have the very real concern that you're taking a cell that, if left in the body, would never divide again. You're exposing it to a rich cocktail of growth factors and substrates in vitro and maybe encouraging it to re-embark on division. But if it doesn't retain the stem cell properties, it may be quite hazardous to use for transplantation purposes. So there is a, a concern there. But, but nevertheless, uh, what people uh, would envisage was that whether they come from adult, fetal, fetal or embryonic sources, that you could establish uh, <coughs> banks of tissue-typed pathogen-free stem cells that would be there in anticipation of patient needs and that you might be able to, for example, seed a failing organ with healthy stem cells uh, and thus avoid having to replace the organ in its entirety. So we have various sources of stem cells to address the question of availability, but we still have the thorny problem of compatibility, that when you're grafting between two individuals, the probability of a perfect match, other than between rare identical twins, is about the same order as winning the national lottery. So you have to try and get as good a match as you can but then put the patient on so-called immunosuppressive drugs, which are very blunt instruments that damp down the activity of the immune system, and they render the graft patient more susceptible to a variety of infectious diseases and indeed to certain types of cancer. So it was with the Dolly the Sheep development in mind that people thought, aha, this may be a way of circumventing this problem. So in other words, we have a patient we require to say, replace the liver, for example. We could take the nuclei from healthy cells from some other tissue like skin, transplant them into eggs, activate the eggs to develop to the blastocyst, derive embryonic stem cells from the blastocyst, which would by definition be essentially genetically identical to the patient and would offer no graft problems. 
But there are practical problems there, and although there's division of opinion within the scientific community, I can guarantee that this so-called therapeutic cloning technique will never be available on the National Health Service. It is grossly inefficient. Uh, it requires huge numbers of precious human eggs or oocytes in order to embark on this. And from the studies of cloning in animals, there are real concerns about the normality of the resulting cells. So it's a technique that may be useful in the laboratory or for modeling human genetic diseases, but I don't think it's a therapeutic treatment. And it's rather been superseded by another interesting development. Let's gloss over that one. The, the other interesting development is that various people have been asking, if you, if you look at embryonic stem cells, asking what genes are uniquely expressed in these cells that have this very wide developmental potential. Can we identify particular genes? And Yamanaka and his colleagues in Japan were first to do this. They found that essentially you needed four genes that were expressed in embryonic stem cells and that if you put these genes in uh, by means of viral sequences into an adult cell, a skin cell or a liver cell, you can, at very low frequency, convert those cells into what look at all intents and purposes like genuine embryonic stem cells. In the studies that were done in the mouse, these adult somatic cells were, in this way, converted into cells that looked like embryonic stem cells, would form chimeras on being put into host embryos, and would form every type of adult cell. So that is a far more promising approach to... Uh, the question of making patient-compatible cells. that You would take normal cells from a patient, uh, express the stem cell genes, convert them into stem cells, and then get them to form whatever cell type you want. But there's a long way to go on this. At the moment, the efficiency is remarkably low, and we don't know why. It could be when you take an adult population of skin cells or fibroblast cells or muscle cells that it's only a small proportion of those cells in a tissue that have stem cell properties that are capable of responding to this. Uh, <clears throat> that's one possibility. The other concern is at the moment people are getting away from this now, but you have to introduce these genes originally using what are known as retroviral sequences. And these retroviral sequences, when used to put foreign genes into patients with leukemias, for example, to express the normal gene, have been implicated in producing certain types of cancer. So this technology needs to be improved, but these so-called induced pluripotential cells are a very promising way of making patient, tailoring patient-specific stem cells that would not be rejected. So if we look to the future, uh, the earliest type of uh, grafting one can expect is where you need pure populations of cells, say pure populations of particular nerve cells uh, producing so-called dopaminergic nerve cells that would be required for Parkinson's patients, uh, populations of cardiomyocytes to put into regions of uh, damage of the cardiac muscle uh, through heart attacks, uh, liver cells, uh, pancreatic-secreting cells. Where we still have a real challenge is where it would be necessary to produce a higher order of architecture of what you're grafting. But progress has been made in this, and a later talk this morning will describe one clear example of this. I just want to deal with another, 
and that was very interesting work by Atala and his colleagues in the States to deal with problems of malformed development of the urinary bladder or uh, <coughs> loss of a large amount of bladder tissue through tumors. And basically what they did was to take a biopsy of the inner surface cells of the bladder from the patient or the child requiring a graft, take a biopsy of cells from the outer cell layer of the bladder, grow them up in culture, and then seed them on opposite sides of an extracellular matrix. This looks a bit like a sort of skinned orange, but the cells are seeded on both sides, and in this way they could actually generate a sort of hemibladder in culture, which they could then graft into the native bladder to restore volume and restore function. So that is one uh, example of going to more sophisticated uh, tissue architecture. Uh, as I say, later this morning you will hear another uh, very striking case of that. But uh, <clears throat> when we go on to consider some of the other challenges, one of the great challenges at the moment is the inexorable rise in the incidence of chronic kidney failure, which is largely due to obesity-related type 2 or insulin-resistant diabetes. And the frightening thing about this is the condition develops in such an insidious way that patients can remain largely without symptoms until damage to the kidney is irreversible. Now, the kidney is a, a filtration unit of blood that filters about a litre of blood every 10 minutes. It re probably recycles our entire blood volume every hour and a half. And the basic units that are responsible for this are the so-called nephrons. So the blood supply goes into this capsule. Uh, the <clears throat> blood components are sort of filtrated out into this system, which then uh, chemically alters the composition. It retires what is required in the way of minerals to the circulation, and then you end up with the finally what you don't want as urine. And the depressing thing is, again, unlike lower vertebrates, in mammals... Uh, our entire endowment of these renal tubules or nephrons is established about the time of birth. Uh, if damage occurs to an individual nephron, then stem cells within it can repair the damage, but there is no, so far, there's been no success whatsoever in generating these new nephron units within the kidney. And the prospect in vitro of generating something as sophisticated as that is, at the moment, completely out of sight. There is an alternative, albeit a very controversial one, and that is the possibility of using kidney rudiments from aborted fetuses uh, for grafting purposes. And this has been demonstrated in the mouse that you can take the fetal metanephric kidney, graft it into an adult, and it will grow in size, link up, and function. But that's an area that people, a region of territory that people have hardly begun to explore at this stage. But, so that, that is one of the great challenges, but there are a number of other ones. It is commonly said in the literature that embryonic stem cells are marvellous. They're the greatest thing since processed cheese because uh, they can be grown indefinitely without change. While it is true you can grow these a long time in culture without any visible change in chromosome size or number, uh, we've actually found that uh, there are more subtle changes that can occur in adaptation to culture. So one of our best embryonic stem cell lines in the mouse, after a relatively short period in culture, on putting it into an embryo, it would give perfectly good chimeras, contribute normally. Uh, Fifty passages later, 
the cells were chromosomally completely normal, you could do DNA sequencing, there was no change in the DNA, but when you put those late passage cells into the early embryos, not only did they fail to give chimeras, they actually disrupted development of the host embryo. So what we're dealing here is stable non-genetic changes, not a change in the DNA, but stable changes in the protein around the DNA which determine whether genes are expressed or not. And we have the ultimate test in the mouse, and that is asking, can the cells form a chimera? People working with humans don't have that option. So they have a real challenge of asking, are our long-term cultured stem cells actually safe to use in patients? So that's one of the challenges. A second challenge is the challenge that when you get these cells to specialise you very seldom end up with a pure population of cells. We can say we want to produce the right type of nerve cell for dealing with Parkinson's disease, but what you end up with a culture, the majority of cells may be right, but a minority may be different. And when people did these early studies, completely unaccountably, about 20% of the cells in the nerve culture were producing insulin and were clearly not nerve cells. So it would be a bad idea to put such a mixed graft into the brain of a patient. So you've got to think about purifying these cell populations before you do so. Now, one way you can do this is if the specialized type of cell that you want carries a protein on its surface to which you can make an antibody that will bind to it and the antibody carries a fluorescent tag, and you can use a device called a, a fax, a fluorescence-activated cell sorter, which will uh, sample the cells and squirt the fluorescing ones into one pot and the others into another. And when you go through two cycles of this, you can end up with a population of cells that's about 99.9% .9 pure. Another trick that's been used for this, but might be less acceptable clinically because it involves genetic modification, is just illustrated here. We can say crudely that genes consist of two regions, the region that codes the protein product and the region that controls when and where that protein product will be produced. So we could take a, 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 a gene, let's say the so-called nesting gene, that's supposed to be specifically expressed in early nerve cells. We can take the control region of that gene, which will determine whatever it's linked to is expressed only in the right type of cell, and we can we can bond it on to the coding sequence of an antibiotic resistance gene. Then, having modified your stem cells in this way, you then drive them in the direction of forming nerve cells. All those that have gone in the right direction will be expressing the antibiotic. The ones that have gone in the wrong direction won't. So you then expose your culture to the antibiotic, and all the ones that are forming nerve cells will survive, and all the others will be killed. But as I say, the caveat there is that certainly in this country there's a lot of public resistance to genetic modification and it can uh, cause problems on its own. A third technical issue is that in some cases what we want is a pure population, say in the nervous system, of cells that will alleviate Parkinson's disease, but we want those cells to be so-called post-mitotic. We want these to be fully differentiated cells. We don't want to, them to start growing in, inside the brain. So in some cases, you want to get the final type of product out. But if, for example, we were trying to restore a region of damaged, damaged intestine, we'd want our cells not to form 
terminally differentiated intestinal cells, but to form the, the stem cells of the intestine because the intestine has to turn over its cell population uh, very regularly. And so that is a question of how you actually get in one case to specialized non-dividing cells, how in other cases you preserve the stem cells. And by analogy with ecology, uh, this is just crudely illustrates it, there's growing evidence that stem cells require a particular niche. Here are stem cells outlined in red, and basically what we're saying in this case is in order to retain the characteristics of a stem cell, these cells have to be in contact with the green cells. When they divide, if one product ceases to be in contact with the green cells, it's thereby committed to become specialised, and the one that retains contact will retain stem cell properties. If both lose contact, will both become specialised. And at the moment, we still know relatively little about these uh, stem cell microenvironments. To go to the more general problems, of course, one of the ones that exercise people over many years is the status of these very early stages of development. And often the talk about these is rather loose. People say, when does human life begin? Well, of course, human life never begins or ends. It has an absolute continuity. And you can say that any cell, a fetal cell, an embryonic cell, an adult cell, a cancer cell, is endowed with human life so long as it contains a human set of genes. So what we're really concerned about is when does the life of a new human individual begin? And based on the, what we know about the biology of these very early stages of development, which are geared towards forming the membranes which will enable mediation of attachment and nutrition of the future fetus, you can detect up to uh, the so-called primitive streak stage, which is the limit set for culturing these embryos at present in the human, up to that stage, you can find no cells that are dedicated cells to form the future fetus. But views differ about this, and some people feel that full human rights should be accorded uh, to these stages from the moment of fertilization. And this, there is the old uh, hammy story about the discussion between the the Irish Catholic priest, the Anglican clergyman, and the Jewish rabbi on this subject, and uh, they, they turned to the Catholic priest and said, well, what, what are your views on this? And he said, well, fertilization or conception is the time of absolute protection. The Anglican said, no, I disagree. It's the time of implantation or primitive streak. And they turned to the rabbi and said, when do you think human life begins? And he said, when the kids are 18 and have left home. <laughs> But there is, there is another aspect to this, and this is that, uh, particularly raised by so-called therapeutic cloning, that any technical advances that improve the success of therapeutic cloning uh, carry the scary possibility of making full reproductive cloning more likely. And this has been a very wide concern. And it's particularly concerned because of the completely dotty reasons uh, why some people have suggested this might be a good idea. For example, I've even heard people saying this would be a way of replacing a precious child lost in a road accident, that you would then uh, take tissue from this person and clone it. That's incredibly naive. I mean, it's as naive as supposing that had Beethoven died in the permafrost, so his nuclei were perfectly preserved, that if you then use that for cloning, you'd probably end up with an entity that bore a striking physical resemblance to Beethoven, but, but all the higher mental characteristics that define Beethoven, that's how he is, 
uh, would not have emerged. And I can put a bit more substance to this by talking about these two gentlemen here who were born in what was then Siam, now Thailand, in 1811, uh, Ang and Chang Bunker, and they were conjoined twins, they were conjoined at the chest. And there was so much superstition about them in early life that it was questionable whether they'd survive. They were taken under the wing of an English sea captain, an American entrepreneur, and became part of a traveling freak show uh, on the understanding that they would be released from this when they attained their majority. So Chang and Eng, still attached to each other, um, became pillars of the business community in North Carolina. Uh, both married, one side 10 children, the other 11. But by the time they reached middle age, they were getting on so badly, they agreed that they would have at all costs to be separated. So the story is they went to this American surgeon uh, who looked, reviewed the situation and said, well, do you want me to do that or do that? Because the outcome will be the same. I think that's actually wrong because these were two different personalities and this one became quite morose and morbid and took to drinking to excess. But there was no clear evidence that when he became raging drunk that this one was that badly affected. So I think the connection was more superficial than was generally felt. But the important thing is uh, they lived to the age of 63. <coughs> and so you have a situation where same egg, same sperm, same uterine environment of necessity, same postnatal environment for 63 years, and yet they were completely different personalities. So how can a clone be more like its original than their cases? So, I mean, apart from the, 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 the case of identical twins, all of us have enjoyed a unique shuffling of our parental genes. And I think the idea of cloning, of imposing the genetic constitution of a future individual that's identical to an existing one, is something that shouldn't be contemplated lightly. But there is a person called Zavos who's still advocating this. He intends to clone, and his argument is it would enable a biologically within-couple child to be produced where the male partner is incapable of producing any sperm whatsoever. So the idea is you'd take a, a body cell nucleus from the male, put it into the egg of the female partner, and then get a child in that way. Uh, this actually horrifies me because certainly in animal studies, complete sterility in the male is very rare and likely to be genetically determined. So if you engage in this practice, you have a frightening prospect of producing a child which itself is reproductively isolated from the rest of humanity and it can self only be perpetuated by cloning, which I think is an extremely dangerous um, idea. And I will stop at that point. Thank you very much.